This is the Strategic Crisis Podcast for the week of March 1st, 2010, and uh, I am Jeff Nyquist. I'm conducting the podcast for Strategic Crisis, and with me is um, Sergey Kabud. Uh, Sergey, are you there? Yes. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Glad yeah, to hear you. Uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting, and I, I, I think that it's part of the education of people to understand how uh, the KGB structures and the former communist structures in Ukraine, for example, and other Soviet republics and former Soviet countries, uh, communist countries, continue to operate. And uh, you have this wonderful uh, story that you were telling me last week about a woman in Ukraine that did something rather intriguing that uh, helps Moscow's work in that country. Perhaps you could describe it for our listeners. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Um, uh, as as we know, the uh, presidential elections in Ukraine just finished, and the new president is inaugurated, and he is Mr. Viktor Yanukovych, the same gentleman that lost a famous uh, election in Ukraine in 2004 to Viktor Yushchenko. So ta- time passed by, and now he was elected a president. And this time, uh, there were no sufficient uh, reports of any uh, wrongdoings along the election, any falsification. Well, there possibly were some uh, something here and there, but generally, all the international observers, uh, big uh, authoritative organizations uh, from the uh, Parliament of Europe, European Union, everybody confirmed that the election went fine. So... And this is one of the first uh, interesting uh, media episodes that happened very soon after the elections were done. And this is this happens in the western Ukraine and the uh our uh the figure that we are interested in her name is Irina Fairion. So what this woman does is she goes to the uh, kindergarten well or uh in, in in Ukrainian in Ukrainian educational system, it's like it's a elementary school. I think that's what it's called. Called and she talks to various small children. Well, uh, something like seven or eight years of age, maybe even younger than that. And her message is to them: she is kind of like teaching them to be proper Ukrainians. So her message is that um, uh, if you call yourself by the Russian uh, variation of your name, not by Ukrainian one. And, well, we know that Ukrainian language and Russian language are of the same family of languages. And, well, we all have same names, like uh, the name Maria. Let's, let's take this one, for example. In Russian, it sounds Maria. In Ukrainian, it sounds Marichka. So it's, it's a little bit different. So message of Mrs. Ferion is, if you were little ch- children, call yourself by the Russian version of your name, you'd better pack your things and go to Russia, away from Ukraine. She puts it very very bluntly and very aggressively. And this creates an absolute outrage in Ukrainian society. Because, well, I mean, exploiting very little children in this way for political reasons could be called anything, but it is a provocation. Mm-hmm. So, Yes. So people start to ask questions. Who is this Mrs. Ferion? Why is she so outrageously stupid? What is she trying to achieve through this? Why is she doing this? 
And this is an interesting answer to this. First of all, what we know now, she is one of the very close people to a uh, nationalistic leader of the Western Ukraine that is almost on a verge of being marginal, Mr. Tagnebok uh, and his party Svoboda. These people claim to be nationalist, but usually they, their message is uh, very much xenophobical and very much, uh, well, I would use the word racism for that, so they are known for that. So, so this uh, perhaps you could tell our English uh, listeners what the name of his political party means. Well, n the name Svoboda means freedom. Right, and and now notice the association with a fascist party. Well, uh, it is also something in interesting. This this organization is called Svoboda only recently. Before that, that little marginal political group used to call themselves uh, some sort of a national socialist organization. The word national was a part of the name and socialist was a part of the name. As in and the Nazis in Germany were national socialists. Exactly. And the, the ideology that these people uh, promote uh, has these elements as uh, they would like to return a a record in the passport for the citizen that would actually will show the ethnicity of the citizen. How about that? Mm -hmm. They, yeah, this was, this used to be a part of the Soviet now, system. When now, what's interesting is is the background of these people. These people who are now supporting a kind of national socialism, and this woman that goes out and is doing this outrageous sort of anti-Russian thing among Ukrainians and Russians, uh, she is she is of a communist pedigree, isn't she? Well, yeah, that, I was just about to get to that. Um, what, what was found that this woman's husband used to be a uh, department manager in a uh, Soviet communist newspaper, uh, Lviv Pravda, I believe it was called. Today the newspaper changed its name, now it's called by the different name, but it still remains a major newspaper of the Lviv region. It was it used to be the leading communist newspaper, and her, her husband was a department manager in that newspaper, and she used to work for that newspaper, writing articles. So, if anybody is familiar with the Soviet past, uh, they know that in that time, the position of any position in, in an official newspaper, all the newspapers were, of course, owned by the government and controlled by the Communist Party and KGB. The level of control was enormous. You couldn't actually not just publish anything. You couldn't get a job there if you are not loyal or if you are not a member of the party or a secret agent of the KGB. So these people are just from the very middle of the Soviet communist and KGB structures. But it's very interesting how they changed their color. They used to be communists, and now they are radical nationalists, so to speak. Mm. Now, and yes, and they promote this anti-Russian, absolutely ridiculous things to small children. Which, what of, else course, is, which of course, embarrasses uh, genuine Ukrainian nationalists by making Ukrainian nationalists appear to be 
fascists. Exactly, exactly. The, this, the, this. Well, I don't, I don't really know how it all happened, but the as a result of this publication, it was recorded on YouTube, so anybody could actually watch it, listen to what this uh, Miss Farion is or Mrs. Farion is saying, and get outraged. This thing is widely quoted in the Russian mass media as a uh, quote-unquote example of how bad is Ukrainian patriotism and nationalism, how supposedly Ukrainians hate anything Russian, and including how those Ukrainians indoctrinate small children in the hatred towards Russians. Mm. And so, of course... This makes the Ukrainians sound like haters. It blackens the name of Ukraine. And it makes the Russians look like the innocent victims of some new rising form of fascism in Ukraine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And these people are associated with the, with the political uh, marginal groups that are known to be um, very close to... Uh, as you said, national socialism, Nazism, whatever you call it. These people never gain anything over around 1% of vote in Ukrainian elections, either local or uh, state or anything. Those are the political group that it is known are financed by shadow forces and that promote things that are extremely unpopular in Ukraine. So we should ask them, well, it is so obvious that xenophobia and hatred never gets a lot of vote or any sufficient support, public support. So then what are they for? What is their goal if they are sort of uh, destroying their own potential popularity in constituency? and promote ideas of hatred. Hmm. It is uh, uh, a game of divide and conquer for the Russians, because if the Russians can make uh, Ukrainians and Poles and, and Lithuanians and Estonians and Latvians and Georgians all appear to be somehow off base, somehow fascist or somehow in the pocket of some bizarre ideology or in the pocket of American or Western businessmen, they then make them seem like bad guys to other yes. Russians. It rallies Russians, it rallies the support of them, it embarrasses Ukrainians and, and other nationalities that they play this game with, and they set people against each other and then create a problem to which, of course, being open to Moscow's uh, policies and imperatives, and the imperatives of Moscow's quote-unquote moderate agents who are in charge in these different countries uh, makes the, the, uh, the government, governing of these areas under quote-unquote democracy fairly easy. Yes, yes, of course, yes, of course. It's so instead of realizing uh, of the actual threats and uh, uh, trying to protect the, uh, the Ukraine from the actual threats, trying to reform the economy, the political system, to uh, pursue better policies. Ukrainians and uh, Russians are uh, 
pushed to towards uh, towards the conflict between each other and which is absolutely unacceptable and damages the national interest of Ukraine and of Russia of course mm-hmm. and of course uh, by making the Ukrainians uh, into this uh, into these bad guys Ukraine has a large Russian ethnic population this divides the country of Ukraine uh, along ethnic lines and of course Many Ukrainians would be married to Russians or have Russians in their families. And so this creates a, a, a problem for all these people. So people are not uh, going to support some kind of a, a radical Ukrainian nationalism. But they could paint all Ukrainian nationalism with this brush, which basically weakens the nation of Ukraine in any kind of future independent stance against Moscow. Well, yes, of course, specifically in a, in a situation when the Ukrainian nation is still in its early phase of development. The country uh, got official independence in uh, uh, the 1992, and uh, uh, a lot of institutions are, are not well developed yet. The constitution needs uh, a lot of amendments. So it's still a, a very, very early stage for Ukrainian nation, and it is attacked from all the sides. And of course, like you said, Ukraine, Ukraine has an enormous uh, percentage of Russian ethnic population. Uh, basically, uh, I would say that uh, almost all Ukrainians speak or read Russian. So Russia is very close neighbor, and the people of Russia is very friendly uh, and you, towards Ukrainians, and Ukrainians are very friendly towards Russians. They are just really could be considered very close relatives. So mm-hmm. it is very much to the interest of the state of Ukraine and Russia to be friendly, to find the common ground, to actually uh, kind of find the way to live peacefully and to have all this uh, mm-hmm. economic relationship in between. Well, of course, it's, it's, of course, it's like... We, we did a podcast with Boris Shikole and he talked about how heavily infiltrated the, the hierarchy of Ukraine is with KGB agents, people with KGB background, and people from former Communist Party structures. Uh, that basically he made the comment in the podcast that Ukraine could be rolled back into the Soviet Union in a matter of uh, a couple of weeks. Well, yes. I found that really fascinating because it sort of reinforces what uh, Anatoly Galitsyn warned about decades ago, saying that there were going to be changes in the Soviet Union, there were going to be changes in Eastern Europe, but these changes were going to be cosmetic, that beneath the surface the Communist Party would go underground, it would continue to, c- to control the economy and politics through its agent networks, and uh, that the, the appearance of, of autonomy, freedom, capitalism, and democracy was going to be just that, only an appearance. And of course now we see, as, as we've talked to people in Poland and Ukraine and in other former communist countries, uh, I, I I wrote for Slav Gorgiev over at uh, Democracy Today in, in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria a couple of years back. I've talked to people in the Czech Republic. We've had Robert Bukar on podcasts here uh, before, uh, the Czech uh, cinematographer. And we've, we've, we've heard the testimony. We've, we've seen exactly what 
is going on in those countries, even though the Western media seems to follow the, the standard line of, oh, they got their freedom, oh, they're independent, but they really aren't. There's a kind of mockery going on here. And, and what I hear about these bogus political parties, like this, this extremist little neo-Nazi party, I, I can't help thinking that, that some of the larger political parties in these countries are just the same thing on a bigger scale. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, you know what comes to my mind? Uh, there is a, some sort of analogy in, in the Russian political life of this party, the organization led by a known uh, Russian writer, Edward Limonov. Mm. Uh, yes. That, he, that, he, wrote, he wrote for the exile years ago, didn't he? Yes, correct. He used to live in New York City, then in Paris, and then return back to Russia. He um, became famous when he published a book uh, by the title uh, It's Me, Eddie. Uh, that is an outrageous book, uh, almost pornographic, uh, where his uh, protagonist lives. He's a Russian immigrant living in New York, uh, who uh, um, has nothing better to do than walk the streets of Manhattan picking up uh, um, other men willing to perform sexual acts with him. And all those things are uh, described there. And basically the message of this book uh, that was published in millions in Russia, by the way, after 1991, the... Uh, I've heard that the circulation of the first edition was over a million. So the message is basically, if you are a Russian, dreaming of a big United States of America, of American freedom, all that, you're wrong. Only thing that you can get if you come here is, well, to get screwed by the streetwalkers in New York City. Hmm. Which so it, is it basically depicted America as a very immoral place where sexual immorality was rampant. And uh, perhaps drugs were depicted in this book as well? Oh, of course, of course, and not just in that book. In other books, he also writes a, a lot about him taking drugs in a different sexual situation with different men and women. And the, the whole thing, well, he, he, he is an outrageous and very unpleasant person from any angle. But and he's, this a, he's a talented writer who is able to portray this very effectively to the Russian readers. And yep. basically the Russian readers see that America, that the opening of the so the fall of the Soviet Union, the opening of Russia to the West and to America in particular, is is, is an opening to corruption, is an opening to drugs and, and deviant sex and uh, all kinds of psychological problems and social problems. Yes, that is that is absolutely true, and this is this is another um, thing that I would like to say about this Limonov character. I remember from 1980 uh, from Ukraine. I met some people who used to be uh, used to know this gentleman, and this is this is the first time I ever heard about him. So, well, I don't even know. I don't even. I'm not sure that the word "gentleman" is is uh, is a proper characterization. They told me that this guy left uh, Soviet Union to America, uh, most likely as a KGB agent, with the task to uh, um, to write anti-American things there to persuade Russians in the Soviet Union, like you said, that America is a bad place for them and to 
slander the United States of America in all respects. And well, it's, this it's, it's really interesting, and I should point out, Edward Limonov also happens to be a political, so-called political dissident in Russia and is the founder and leader of the band National Bolshevik Party. Unbelievable name, isn't it? Well, it's like National Socialist. I exactly. Mean, it's like uh, the National Communist Party. I mean, it's National Bolshevik Party, which aims to build, of course, a fairer social state and preferably eventually to encompass all regions populated by Eastern Slavs. So it's, a, it's, it's nationalist and it's also characterized as hardline socialist. So um, it's it's interesting when when he then plays this role of this decadent who's open to the West. He of course mm. he flips out and he becomes a Nazi. Yes, yes. So freedom, what the West represents, is always and again and again being associated with, in the Russian psyche, again and again, fascism. And and I can't hard I I can hardly stop uh, but think about the head of the Liberal Democratic Party in Russia. Um, Mr. Zhirinovsky, yes, that's, a, that's another KGB stooge, of yes. course. And in fact, Zhirinovsky worked for the KGB in Turkey, and he comes back, and he's at a time when there were no independent political parties. You know his funding to start this Liberal Democratic Party came from the KGB. He founds this KGB, and what does he do? He, he, he rants like some kind of a radical fascist who wants to annex Alaska, and he wants to, uh, to act like a bully all over the world. And he talks about Russian soldiers washing their boots in the Persian Gulf um, yes. and things of this nature. Um, and yet, this is the this is what a liberal Democrat signifies. This is right out of uh, communist propaganda, see, because the communists believe that a liberal, a Western liberal, is an imperialist and a, and a fascist, basically. They're all the same. Well, by, by the way, we, sh we should also mention that this national Bolshevik party of Mr. Limonov was founded by Limonov together with another extremely outrageous character whose name is uh, Alexander Dugin, who is known to be an open adept of Aleister Crowley theories. Now, that is very Believe. interesting. Yes, yes. Can you please um, give um, some details on how you uh, see this Aleister Crowley theories, Jeff? Well, um, Aleister Crowley is famous, uh, infamous, I should say, uh, occultist uh, back uh, from earlier in the last century. Um, he was English. Uh, he has some associations with, uh, with what's called sex magic. Um, he was, by those that have studied his life, there are kind of creepy stories about him uh, using magical powers to hurt people. Um, but, uh, but to make a long and short of it is, there is in a book that Crowley wrote called Magic, um, a formula for uh, mm. making oneself magically very powerful by sort of uh, killing a large number of people and performing a certain kind of ritual at the time of their killing, um, presumably in a great war or holocaust or great cat catastrophe. And it's, it's kind of interesting when someone like Alexander Dugan, who is an organizer of this National Bolshevik Party, who, by the way, comes from... He has close ties to the Kremlin and the Russian military... And what I've think, heard that he, he works for, he works as a contractor for the Russian general staff. Yes, 
And this is interesting. He, he uh, put forward uh, a theory called uh, Eurasianism, and he also was involved in a Eurasian party or political movement, claiming, of course, this is an old idea that, uh, that the, uh, the great island on, in the world ocean is the Eurasian island with Africa attached to it. Yeah, it's a supercontinent, Europe and Asia together. And that whatever power dominates this continent is going to dominate the rest of the world because, after all, it's control of land that produces power. And that, yeah. um, uh, that the, the key thing is that Russia has this special role in the world because Russia is the great Eurasian power. It's the country that covers, uh, what what is it, uh, 12 time zones? Um, yes, right. And, uh, and of course, about yeah. one sixth of the world uh, surface. Uh, well, the Soviet Union was, yeah, was. Uh, I think the Soviet Union was uh, more than twenty percent of mm -hmm. the world's land surface. And of course, um, if you if you throw in all the areas in Central Asia and uh, and Ukraine, places that are dominated by Russia, uh, the Caucasus, um, places in Africa. Uh, uh, you, mm -hmm. And then these Arab allies of Russia, uh, like uh, Iran and Syria and Libya, um, you find that this this country, Russia, with its ally China, is extremely powerful. Occupies a key position in the world, and and it, it is interesting that that Dugan, who is uh, and and of course this Limonov character, who kind of satirize. Uh, a, a kind of uh, w corrupted by the West position have these kind of views and promote these things and are, t are the toys or playthings of the real bosses in Russia. Uh, Jeff, have you heard that Mr. Limanov traveled to Yugoslavia in the time of the um, military action there in 98, I believe, 99 maybe, and he, uh, well, he used to call himself a big friend of uh, a war criminal Karadzic. He actually pictured himself as a fighter there against Americans. Well, Slavic uh, nationalism, as if you recall in 99, when the United States and NATO got involved in, um, in Kosovo, in trying to push the Serbs out of that area, uh, it, it was that Russia was used this misstep by Bill Clinton and NATO to uh, bring the Slavs, the southern Slavs of Serbia and former Yugoslavia, closer to Moscow. There was even talk at the time of a union between Belarus, Russia, and Serbia. And, of course, um, the Russians were making great inroads into Serbia at the time. Um, and so... The Russians, while they're trying to divide and conquer other people, they're trying to unite people uh, to their banner. And by the way, they have more than one banner. They can work with Chavez and the communists in Latin America under that banner. They can work with the Slavs in the Balkans under that banner. They can work with the Chinese under the Eurasian banner, the Iranians under the, the oil banner and the, the anti-American banner. And, and so on. It's, uh, it's amazing when, when Vladimir Putin, the current prime minister and former president of Russia, uh, publicly says that Russia is the greatest friend in the world that Islam has. It's a remarkable yes. statement. And yes. uh, I should point out about Dugin, he was born in a family of a high-ranking Soviet military intelligence officer.
I believe a general of GRU or KGB. That's his father. Uh, yeah, he's, he was military intelligence. He was GRU. Uh -huh. And his father got him a job in the KGB archives in the beginning of the 1990s. So this is a guy who's worked at the KGB. His father was in the GRU. So what game is he playing? You know, what what is it that he's really involved with? I mean, he's worked as a journalist involved in politics. It's a perfect for a KGB officer, uh, if that's what he is in secret. And uh, and his his involvement with that uh, nationalist group, Pamyat, which, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken, has anti-Semitic overtones. Yes. And, uh, of course, helped to write the political program of the newly refounded Communist Party of the Russian Federation under the leader of leadership of uh, Zyuganov. Um, These days, by the way, Dugin claims that he is a major ideologist for the uh, Putin and Medvedev party, the um, United Russia, they call themselves. Well, so it's, it's, very, it's, it's very interesting, um, this, this pedigree, because really he is, because all these confusing ideologies that Dugin has been associated with, from the National Bolshevik Party to uh, the Eurasian Movement to the Communist Party of the Russian Federation and Pamyat, all these things, it's all about this red-brown alliance. It's all about, uh, and when you read his writings, you see it, it's all about attacking the West, attacking liberalism, destroying America, destroying Britain, and making Russia supreme throughout the world. Yes. Uh, by and the it way... It doesn't matter whether they use nationalism or socialism or both or <laughs> communism, but that's the program. That is correct. Well, I don't really think that they have any ideology. I think these people are very shrewd strategic planners and they realized that the the most important thing is to how they present themselves to public so the information game the information war as they call it by the way uh, you've heard of such a person as mr panarin the oh, one yes, yes the one panarin. right the the one the one who predicts uh, for the united states a coming revolution and separation of the United States into six different countries. This is exactly the same thing as the KGB was developing for Ukraine. For Ukraine, their prediction is that it will separate into three states. Yes, yeah. so... And, and, of course, any country that's targeted by this divide-and-conquer game is literally targeted with... You know, if you look at Dugan, it's an experiment to... I mean, we look already uh, uh, at um, at the way if you if you look at the flow of ideologically divisive uh, messages into the American media that could cause a civil war here or a breakup of the country, you will find that key elements in this flow are coming from people who are uh, paid agents of Moscow or have past associations with Moscow that are very unusual that yeah. uh, that ought to draw people's attention. And um, uh, I should I know, should name one name, Lyndon LaRouche, Lyndon a LaRouche. very famous man who I think he served ten years in American jail for something not at, at all related to politics. I think it was some very dirty crime that he committed. Not sure what it was. Anybody can look in Wikipedia. It's it's an open source. Yeah. Well, Lyndon LaRouche uh, is a guy, he was born around 1922, so he's pretty old right now. He's an American self-styled economist, political activist, and the founder of several political organizations, 
and uh, he's he's run for president. I remember years ago watching him on these long, boring TV yes. ads where he would uh, run for president. He'd hardly get any votes. Uh, I think he was con convicted for conspiracy to commit mail fraud and tax code violations. But what's really interesting... Well, he served something like 8 or 12 years. I think it was something a little bit more than that. Yeah, yeah. He served a while in prison. I, I can't remember. And, but he also had been uh, uh, sort of linked co to conspiracy theory, which is, which is you know, the 9-11 type thing nowadays, saying that 9-11 is somehow the government behind it. Yeah. A link to fascism, linked to anti-Semitism, and underneath it all, linked to communism. Um, and uh, listen, Jeff, there is another thing. No, no, not everybody knows it, but it is also listed even on his Wikipedia page. Lyndon LaRouche was asked to talk, to speak in front of Russian parliament. He was a spokesman uh, invited to speak for Russian parliament and for Russian Academy of Science in 2006, just, well, several years ago. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. We well, put these he... people to jail and they invite them to talk to their parliament. Well, LaRouche was at one point a Trotskyist, and oh. uh, which is a form of communist. And uh, LaRouche, in, earlier on, uh, LaRouche attended meetings of the Socialist Workers' Party, which he joined, as I, as I recall. And uh, he, he, his early days were involved in these, these communist fronts. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, if you look at Lyndon LaRouche's work, it fits in perfectly with the kind of thing that's going to promote the strategic interests of Russia here in the United States domestically. And he has been uh, heavily involved in in this kind of in the kind of intrigues that cause political splits, that cause new political movements to be. Mm -hmm. Influenced or old ones to be penetrated. Um, oh. He, you know, and he is. By the way, he's taught classes in dialectical materialism, mm. uh, and uh, you know, he he's even been involved with uh, the Maoist Progressive Party, which was, of course, prominent in the Students for Democratic Society (SDS) years ago. Um, so, so this is a guy who has a lot of. Um, connections to the far left and yet is best known for being a, a, a some kind of a, uh, a, a fascist type of person. Um, yes. and, and of course this is the pattern we see in Eastern Europe uh, and the pattern we see here. Wherever the KGB operates this kind of thing is, is, is brought forward. And so a lot of the conspiracy ideology, you know, saying the US government is responsible for 9-11 uh, or or saying that certain events didn't occur in recent U.S. history and getting people all angry at the U.S. government. Um, these people have a hand in it. The enemy in Russia has a hand in it because they have a stake in dividing Americans against each other. And although this guy's, uh, Lyndon LaRouche, for example, is an extremist, it's amazing how subtly um, the rhetoric of of major parties and I ideologues from from both the left and the right in the country who may ha carry more weight could be subtly influenced by parallel messages that have been very astutely and carefully developed by the active measures and disinformation experts in Moscow. Mm -hmm. and w this is something that people have to look for. It is a real thing. 
to, to try to get Americans to be against each other, to shoot at each other, to, uh, to be in strife with each other. Because America is such a strong country, one of the chief ways that they want to bring us down is to have us turn on ourselves. And this is something they've never given up on in Moscow or in Beijing. Uh, it's interesting also to, to mention that uh, Lyndon LaRouche is publishing now um, out of all other things at Huffington Post. And uh, the thing that <laughs> I saw him publish there is uh, is like a uh, caricature, like a drawing, like a cartoon of our President Obama, who looks like Adolf Hitler with his little mustache. So this thing is kind of like a little animation that shows how Obama's face is turned into Hitler's face. Isn't it amazing? Coming from Lyndon LaRouche. Unbelievable. Hmm. Yeah, it is unbelievable. And, and of course, uh, what's, what's really uh, going on with all of this kind of stuff attacking the president? Uh, I don't agree with the President Obama's politics. And, of course, I've, uh, you know, but that's neither here nor there. You don't, you don't cross a certain line when it comes to uh, national unity. You know, we have elections. We have uh, um, ways of, of dealing We have a political with, uh, process that is regulated by our Constitution, right? By our right? Constitution, exactly. And there is something in these in the rhetoric. There's something always in this rhetoric that goes over the edge. There's some kind of violence uh, uh, in it that uh, is is sort of alleging. For example, LaRouche has alleged for many, many years that there's these massive, that all the the mainstays of American politics and business are kind of in, involved in massive dope operations, you know, massive uh, money laundering and uh, uh, dope smuggling and just, just horrible accusations of this kind being thrown around. Um, and, and, of course, this, this makes people... Um, Completely, anyone who accepts it or believes it or even a seed of doubt is planted in their mind, this opens people up to even more outlandish uh, anti-government uh, rhetoric, which, of course, once you begin demonizing somebody or something, uh, you're setting yourself up for potential of violence. Of course, yes, yes. Well, there, there, there are a lot of similarities in between all these characters. Limonov, Dugin, uh, LaRouche... These uh, marginal people from Ukraine who use small children for the political purposes. This is, and the, the, the common denominator, I would put it in three letters known for years. Those are KGB. Those three letters that are the common denominator. Somehow, uh, well, there is something very much common to, to these people and to that organization uh, as we as we can see and we can actually prove it by uh, uh, by reading what they publish and they do publish openly this uh, this Mr. Dugan uh, is absolutely open about his hatred towards the West, about his hatred towards human rights about his hatred towards democracy and he is openly calling for military assault on the West, including the usage of the nuclear weapon. This is mm -hmm. how open these people are. 
And of course, every one of these trial balloons goes up and they, they're able to register different levels of popular reaction in Russia and other countries to this way of talking. And this, by the way, leaves their own government leaders free to study people's reactions to such ideas without having to commit themselves to them at all. Yes, that um, is absolutely true. And that's the same thing, by the way, Igor uh, Panarin uh, is doing with his pronunciations about a civil war in the United States breaking out sometime in the next year. Um, he is a professor, he's an academician, a political scientist, writer, intelligence analyst, strategic forecaster in uh, the Russian Federation. And he's most notable for his hypothesis, of course, that the disintegration of the U.S. into six parts is, is coming. He, he first started talking about this, by the way, as long ago as 1998. Interesting. And he's written 15 books, but he was a KGB guy. Mm -hmm. And he now teaches at uh, the diplomatic school there in Moscow. I and, wonder uh, what is that he's teaching there. He's also, he, I think his PhD is in psychology. He calls himself a expert, an expert in information war. Yes. He's written lots of articles on information war for psychology and geopolitics. And obviously he knows a lot about psychology, and which is the key field for doing this kind of work. Um, he's, uh, he's got high-profile students and, uh, and, in, and is thought to be influential uh, within the foreign ministry and the Kremlin. So he's... Um, He's a serious guy. He's a, he's not uh, he's not a lightweight by any means, and of course he graduated from the Higher Military Command School of Telecommunications of the KGB, mm -hmm. which is uh, which is uh, fancy talk for you know uh, psychological it's, it's warfare, <laughs> psychological warfare officer. Um, and of course, I, I wonder if he's not just predicting bad things for the United States, but actually is developing methods to subvert the United States. Well, uh, you know, when it's very interesting to... It's very hard. When, when somebody makes a prediction, um, we normally think of them as, you know, sort of being analysts, sort of honestly trying to see something that happens. He's also planting a seed in people's minds that this is possible. Uh, he's telling also signaling the faithful in Russia, the faithful in the KGB and the foreign ministry, that this is the plan. And, and, and there are certain things in Russia when you look at that are outrageous that are said in the open, that have to be said in the open, that are sort of describing where things are going. Because we happen to know, if you go back to the, uh, the book We Will Bury You, written by a very high-level communist official, Jan Sena, who defected in 1968, in his book he talks about... Um, uh, Russian officials coming to Prague in uh, the fall of 1967 uh, describing a long-range plan. And in this long-range plan, what they envisioned for the United States was um, uh, softening it up, getting a progressive government elected to power, having an economic crisis hit the United States, having the people of the United States turn against the system. Yes. Now, that was described to the Czech leadership as part of the Soviet plan in 1967. What Panarin is describing is, he's saying, look, we're still trying to divide the Americans against each other, and it's working. We can actually make a prediction that we think it's going to happen. This is very important to tell people who are working in your organization these kind of 
this kind of thing because it raises morale and it creates hope and it says look just work a little bit harder we're almost there um and, and of course, it's it motivates. Uh, it motivates. And the, the Soviet uh, in the Soviet Union, destabilizing the United States was a is a major uh, objective. The United States is the main enemy of the former Soviet Union and of China, and its elimination as a great power is central to their mission to what they want to do. Um, and of course, uh, the prediction just to go over Panarin's prediction about the United States being divided into Russia would, by the way, get get Alaska. So Zhirinovsky, who, by the way, sponsored legislation in the Duma a decade ago to mm -hmm. annex, to create the machinery for annexing Russia, Panarin says that Russia will, I mean, for annexing Alaska. Alaska, yes. Uh, Panarin says that Russia will annex Alaska. Um, and he 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 bases these as a result of the U.S. being separated into many different into territories. these five parts, yeah, uh, which is um, in the uh, he he claims that he bases this analysis on classified data about the actual state of the U.S. economy and society. And of course, I, as a student of American society myself, I believe that the society is divided. I believe there are enormous problems and pathologies here. And I also happen to think that the uh, Soviet active measures have had a hand in helping to uh, aggravate those. I, I think uh, some people may have heard uh, my past interviews with Joe Douglas and his book Red Cocaine, The Drugging of America and the World, about the Russian involvement in the drug trade, the Russian drug offensive initiated by Nikita Khrushchev half a century ago. Um, th this is not uh, make-believe. This is documented. This is real. And, and there's testimony from major defectors uh, behind this. Um, Panarin's forecast is for the probable disintegration of the U.S. into these six parts uh, in 2010. Uh, and he gives the period from the end of June to the start of July 2010 uh, all the way to 10th of December. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, he says it will be a, uh, the breakup will uh, follow a civil war triggered by economic decline and moral de degradation here. And of course we see the economic decline and of course the moral de degradation uh, is is not uh, entirely false. There's there's uh, many uh, moral people here in the United States but this country is not what it used to be and people can see that. Well yes, so we do, we do have this threat but what is what is shocking is that the enemy understands how to exploit those things against our national interest. And they may actually, well, they probably, as we speak, they are making an effort to, to exploit it, to actually make us into the, well, to push United States into the civil war, to push United States into, um, like like you said, the separation, and whatever, the, whatever they're trying to do. So this this is this is what is really blood freezing to me. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting is, and this is what we should talk about in our last segment here. Um, and and again, I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is uh, Serge Kabud, and we're talking about uh, uh, Russian strategy of divide and conquer, and their active measures and uh, provocations. And 
one of the things is that the, the civil war was actually fostered in Russia, a controlled civil war, a kind of experiment, and at the same time a kind of laboratory for developing all kinds of, of, uh, of, of spin-offs. Uh, mm -hmm. In the in Chechnya, we we had the first Chechen war in the 1990s, and then in the late 90s we had the second Chechen war, which was kicked off by these bombings that uh, took place in Moscow yes. and other Russian cities that killed nearly 300 people in September 1999. And um, you have been talking to a lady who yes. claims she can identify the bombers, uh, and of course the uh, to to make it. Uh, it clear there was an incident in Ryzon where they actually caught people planting well they didn't actually catch them but they they stopped a bombing on an apartment complex yes and these bombings were going on and they they had police sketches of the three people who placed this bomb in the basement of an apartment in the city correct the local police and they they blocked the city off and as I remember the story is is that uh, they wanted to catch these people. And mm. a local telephone operator caught these people calling to the FSB headquarters in Moscow saying, you know, they've mm. blocked the, 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 uh, the trains. They're watching everything. We can't get out of town. Uh, mm. What do we do? So the deputy head of the FSB came forward. That's the KGB, by the way, the FSB in, in Russia, came forward and said, um, by the way, the, the so-called planning of the bomb in Ryzen was, was a drill. It wasn't really hexogen. It was sugar. So it really wasn't an explosive. We were just testing the vigilance of the citizens. I mean, mm -hmm. incredible. An incredible yes. admission by the FSB. And then, of course, um, perhaps, Serge, you can tell us about a woman who believes that she knows and recognizes yes. the people in those police drawings. This is absolutely shocking story, and uh, I learned about it from reading a blog of um, uh, Mr. Ilarionov, uh, who used to be a top uh, advisor to uh, President Putin and uh, also top advisor to uh, Prime Minister Chernomyrdin in the past, and who resigned as a protest against the uh, certain policies of the Russian government and who is a, uh, um, a fellow at the uh, Cato Institute in Washington these and days. He, he, runs a, he runs, runs a website, and so you ran into this information on this, this Russian right. website. Yes, he mentioned this, this, uh, this, this incident on, on his blog. So this is how I learned about it. And uh, I found the blog of this woman. Her name is um, uh, Victoria Kamenskaya. And um, uh, this is her story, uh, and I'll try to make it real short, and we maybe continue with it uh, uh, next time. Uh, she saw a documentary of this incident that you just described of the apartment bombings in Ryazan that fortunately were not blown up as other buildings in Moscow. Yeah, and these these bombings, by the way, were, were blamed on Chechen terrorists, which justified the Russian army going into Chechnya. So, so go ahead. Yes, yes. So th this lady, uh, Miss Kamenskaya, saw this documentary very late, only in the May of two thousand nine. Well, that's that's how it happens. That how well, that's what she claims. And when she saw this, all these sketches of the uh, um, uh, perpetrators. 
She recognized a face of the woman. There are three people there, two men and a woman. So she recognized the face as of some woman that used that Miss Kamenska used to know from Moscow University where she studied. She was her classmate in the university. She knew her not very well, but she used to. Met her, used to have her at her home, used to visit her home. So she recognized her. And then the whole different story began. And this is something that I think we have to allocate a specific podcast because it has a lot of details in the in it, and uh, we are running out of time. And I well, I don't think uh, maybe we can have her on a podcast because she I does hope speak so. English. Yes, I hope so. Yes, and I hope that we will her. invite her. Yeah, it's a complicated story because you know she she believes she knows these people, and it's interesting. And and by the way, there's some uh, serious people who actually agree or think that she doesn't know them. Yes, of course. Yes, you of might, course. You might mention that. That's, uh, I think, that's significant. Yes. Uh, well, um, uh, it about Miss Kamenska's story. It is rather sensitive because, from what I know, she's under constant hidden surveillance in Moscow now. Mm-hmm. She had several breaks in in her apartment when she mm-hmm. wasn't there. That's not good. Yes, and uh, as far as her story, um, there are two men who were involved in uh, as journalists and a lawyer in investigation of the apartment bombings. One is a uh, uh, now he's an American citizen. His last name is Felstinsky. He's the one who wrote a number of books on the issues, uh, co-authoring a at least one book with the uh, deceased Mr. Litvinenko. Yeah, Mr. Levinenko, who was poisoned with polonium in uh, London. Yes, it was uh, Blowing Up Russia was the title of the book. Uh, The FSB and its involvement in sort of provoking the Chechen war by, you know, causing the bombings and causing the terrorism that was subsequently blamed on the Chechens. Right. And from what I've heard from Ms. Kamenska is that uh, Mr. Flushtinsky fully agrees with uh, her uh, take on this story. Mm. And the other one who does agree with, with, with her take is uh, a lawyer, Mr. Trepashkin, the one who served several years in jail, also um, in relation to the Litvinenko story and apartment bombing story. Mm. Those are very famous figures in Russia, uh, in, in some way contradictory figures, but famous people whose names are widely known in Russia and uh, outside of Russia. And as, as we mentioned, um, uh, uh, Mr. Felstinsky authored several books on, on the subject. By the way, uh, if, um, uh, if you remember, there was a very interesting piece in the JQ magazine published in August. Oh, yes. Yes, Scott Anderson. Right, right. Yes, about inter- the apartment bombings. That was it. Was the tenth anniversary of those bombings here last September? Correct, correct. So, so um, uh, uh, this journalist Scott Anderson interviewed Mr. Tripashkin for that publication. Hmm. 
It's something that is worth reading, and I strongly advise anyone who is interested in the subject to go ahead and read that story. It's widely available online in English, Russian, and possibly all other languages. I think it's, if, if Americans, you know, we see that the conspiracy theories here in America are such kooks, and that they're always the conspiracy theory is, you know, uh, JFK was killed by... Uh, LBJ or killed by the CIA or the corporations, big corporations or the military industrial complex and, and every other thing is blamed on them. They're, they're hiding the truth about UFOs. They're, uh, you know, they, they've, they're causing global warming. They're causing all kinds of problems in the government. Everything that goes bad, everybody that dies that people like, it's suddenly their fault. But what, what we have to realize in Russia, when there are bombings in this police state, when there are, are, are hostages taken in a theater or there's children killed like at Beslan, you look at it closely and you find government agent provocateurs implicated. And you find that people who are really savvy do not trust the official story. They're not conspiracy theorists like they are here in America who say, oh, you know, a plane didn't hit the Pentagon on 9-11 and, you know, it was all a government job or, or whatever. They're not crazy in Russia to think this way, because in Russia it really is a conspiracy. It is. Well, they, they call it conspiracy theory. Well, in Russia it's not a theory. No. It's a, yeah, it's practice. It's a political practice, political methods. It's, it's something that they do. They just yeah. don't just sit and theorize on that. They actually... The yes. KGB has, has these methods, has well-worked-out methods for controlling the opposition, for provocations, for causing bombings and assassinations and all kinds of things to be exploited politically. And whereas there is no similar organization, the CIA and the, the FBI and other intelligence organizations in the West do not have this level of competence or the depth that the KGB has, the numbers of people, the resources, the wealth, the experience, and they don't operate in a completely amoral, uh, non-legal environment. I mean, there are legal restrictions on American intelligence agencies and services. And even if they, even though you know we know people break rules, but in Russia, there are no rules. These people are the rule. Yes, and that's what that's has to be understood about those. I mean, look at who uh, Putin is. Putin is a career KGB official. Yes. Yes, well, yeah, and as historians figured, Putin is a grandson of Lenin's and Stalin's cook. Yes. The one who is, cooked food for them. Yeah, and of course, if when you're a dictator in a communist country, the person who kick, cooks your food is the most trusted person that you know. Because, of course, your big, biggest threat to you is being poisoned. Yes, as, as so many of them most likely wear poison. Yeah, because when you're surrounded by bodyguards, nobody in their right mind is going to shoot you. That you know, is correct. So uh, That's correct. Well, uh, Serge, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and I want to thank the listeners for listening to this podcast and our discussion about Russia, strategy, provocations, and the way things kind of work in the world. And, and if you're interested in more information on this, please go to my articles at Financial Sense. Go to the archives at Strategic Crisis and JRNyquist.com to read more. Uh, get, get, check out uh, Anatoly Galitsyn's New Lies for Old. Uh, read that book. Read it cover to cover. This is, uh, has been the Strategic Crisis podcast for the first week in March 2010.